The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Continue in our worship with the reading of the word. If you want to turn to Psalm 133, I'm going to read it. It is a song of ascents by David. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Mackenzie. Good morning, everybody. Before we get started here, It's a little warmer inside today, right? Yeah, it's cold outside, but our one little boiler is limping along, and uh, it's going to be another couple of weeks before we get the other one online, but it'll be perfect for Thanksgiving. We can be thankful for our extra warm building uh, and that the Lord has given us boilers that work. Uh, Second, uh, today is Veterans Day. Uh, and I, my dad was in the military, both my grandparents were in the military, and I would be, uh, I, you know, I think I like to acknowledge it, and I like to be thankful for what uh, the men and women um, in our congregation and our country have done so that the, we can all uh, live with freedom, and the, that we have the ability to come to even worship and, and, uh, and praise our Lord with such security. So if you don't mind, if you were in the military, if, and if you were a veteran, I would ask you to stand up. I just want to honor you today for that. Thank you for your service and and thank you for for being here. Well, uh, my name is Andrew. Many of you know that. Uh, And I'm one of the pastors here at Central Bible Church. Um, We've been in a series in the book of Psalm uh, for the entire fall, Uh, and the Psalms are filled with a bunch of songs and praises of people crying out to God. And most of them, but not all of them, uh, were written by a guy named David, King David. And King David was not a perfect guy by any means. He definitely had his faults and his problems but he was willing to lay it out before the Lord and to be honest with his emotions and his questions. He knew that nothing shocked God. And so we learn from his example, every single one of us, as we read through the Psalms, we learn from his example and the other authors like him. And we know that we can cry out to the Lord no matter what our circumstances. And we know that the Bible is written for all people and in all circumstances. And our passage in Psalms today is one, uh, Psalms 133, which we have already written. We heard it read, read a minute ago, and if you haven't already gone there, open up your book, open up your Bibles. Uh, you might have a Bible with you. If you didn't bring one, that's fine too. There's usually a Bible in the pew in front of you. Go ahead and grab that. 
and open up to Psalm 133. Um, if you haven't noticed, uh, this week the psalm is, it's a shorty, it's a little guy. And the, the book of Psalms is the longest book of the Bible, and it has the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. And I managed to pick this sh- a chapter with three verses. I call that overachieving right there. But I think this Psalm 133 has a lot of really great truth in it. And I think all of us, as we, as we unpack this and as we ask the Lord uh, what he could be teaching us, I think we can all come away with this uh, with some really valuable, uh, really valuable insights and thoughts. And as a church, we can do the same as well. So let's pray as we get going. Lord, you are good. And you are good for so many reasons. You're good because you love us. You're always there for us. You've created so many wonderful things. You've allowed us and you've given us this church that we can come and worship you together. Help us to never forget that. Help us never to forget that we are part of a community that is so much bigger than us or even our church. But you've created a a church that goes out from these walls, out through this city, to our country and to our world, where we are loving you and worshiping you together hopefully, in brotherly and sisterly unity. Be with us today. Give us insights, give us knowledge that can not just affect our heads, but that can affect our hearts, and that they'll change how we live our life and how we worship you. Amen. So we see, most likely, that King, King David is the author of, of Psalm 133. And it's possible in your Bible, it'll say right at the top, Psalm 133, a song of ascent. And this song was written uh, for, for people, as the people of Israel, as they were going up into Jerusalem uh, to worship at the temple. It was written as a celebration where the tribes gathered together in unity to worship Yahweh. And some commentators believe that this psalm was actually written specifically for the coronation for, uh, for King David when he was crowned king. So as we read these verses, we need to imagine what it would look like for all of the tribes of Israel. So all the different tribes of Israel coming from different parts of the land, coming together in one spot. And we need to read that as lots of different people with uh, different geographical places, uh, different family values in some cases, different ways of living, coming together for one common purpose, the one thing that they held in unity and held in common despite their differences. And that was to worship Yahweh. So we start in here, it says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. In the Hebrew, the first word is behold. We don't see that. Some of your Bibles might have that. The NIV doesn't have that. But the first word is behold. And I love that. I love that idea. I can just imagine King David standing before the hundreds of thousands of people that are there at his his coronation. And he just, you know, he starts a speech, behold, to all the people that are there. And it's, it's a call to action. It's compelling. It's saying, listen, what I have to share with you is important. Behold, pay attention, soak it in. And I think that's the, the thing with this is that there's a, a blessing of the Lord when his people are all gathered together. We are behold, he, he calls them, behold, come, be part of this blessing. And then also in the NIV, you see the word, it says how, and that's a quantitative word meaning David is asking for others to consider the measure of how good it is. He's trying to make a point here. Asking you to consider how good and pleasant it is. He doesn't leave you hanging on his thoughts on the matter. 
David goes on to give a couple of beautiful images of abundance. Like it's, it's a practical how. And this is what it's, and these are the, the two images. The two words that he uses are um, good and pleasant. I'll get to the other thing in one second. Good and pleasant. And it, David here is just so filled with happiness as he's talking to his people. He's so filled with, with happiness and joy that I almost feel like he's just, his excitement is trying to come across as he's speaking to his people. He's naming what everybody is feeling. And when you dwell in unity, when we all dwell in unity, we should have that abundance of excitement, that abundance of joy. And last week, I think we as a church had a good example of that. Last week, we all came together. And we had a great week. Um, it was a wonderful time of singing, our sermon, and we also had baby dedications. And my little Rudy was up here being dedicated, along with the little Zeller's babies and the Woods babies. And the act of those families coming up in front of everybody and proclaiming that we want to invite everybody into our lives to help us as we raise our children, that's, that's joyous. That's exciting, not only for us, but for the rest of us. But that act of inviting others into our lives is, is kind of different. And we are you know, in a culture that says, you know, when it comes to parenting, kind of that you do you mentality, I'm going to raise my kids the way I want, you raise yours. It's, we've created it as almost taboo. You know, we don't, we don't really get to ask as many questions about people and their parenting. You know, are you a free-range parent or are you a helicopter parent? We don't really ask those. We may make those judgments in our mind, or we may say, man, those kids are out of control, or oh, those parents have too much control over their kids. But our, our culture doesn't really give us the opportunity to speak into, in this case specifically, how we parent our kids. But not here. Not in what we saw last week. Last week we saw an example of, of families getting before a, a community that loves them and saying, we can't do this on our own. We need help. We need help raising kids in a, in a, in a culture that is, that is difficult, that is challenging, where our children have so many opportunities to go astray from God's love. And that's radical. That, that display is radical. It's an example of dwelling together in God's unity. And we all need this, and we all love this in our core. We feel a certain amount of happiness and joy, and this is what David is talking about in this passage. We need each other, and we acknowledge it, and we commit ourselves to each other and celebrate. Um, last, and last, last week, with a meal, right? We finished it off with a meal. Not only did we celebrate, and as we worshiped, we celebrate with our kids, but then we celebrate with an amazing meatloaf where we go home with full bellies and happy hearts. We need to celebrate more as a church. We need to lean into that more, the idea of celebration and being together. And sometimes I think we, we, we gloss over that and we skip over the idea of just being together in unity. It's almost like, ah, not that big of a deal. But we need to, to lean into that and give it a spotlight and highlight the fact when we are together and we are leaning into each other and blessing one another with our words and actions, that's a special thing. And so it goes on, his passage, Psalm 133. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is like, is this the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion? I love these two images. They are um, unusual, at least the first one. 
but it shows that unity comes in abundance. It comes in abundance. And in the first image, we see the high priest and being anointed with oil. And in this case, it's Aaron, speaking specifically to Aaron. But all of the high priests were to be anointed with oil before they were allowed to serve um, the people and before the Lord. And it was a symbol of God's power pouring out on their heads and transferring that power to them, making them a vessel of God to lead the people in his ways. And in most cases, we think that it was just a little bit of oil mixed with some spices, not a lot, and then just simply pour it over the head. It wasn't a, a vast quantity. It was like a big jug of olive oil. They just kind of poured on him. And so in this picture, we see that David paints it here. Whoever's pouring it out isn't just measuring, oh, a little quarter cup for this person or oh, a half cup for this person. It's an overflowing. It's saying, I'm going to pour all of it out. And so it goes down, like oil just pouring down the edges of the hair. I imagine it's just air in the big bushy beard. We see a lot of those in Portland, right? The big bushy beard. So down the face and down the beard, and it's kind of a weird image as it flows down the beard and then onto the robes and then ultimately down onto the floor. It's not your typical anointing. It's a total outpouring from, or a total outpouring onto the priest. And it doesn't stop until it reaches the floor. The second image is that of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is a mountain to the north of Jerusalem, and uh, it was a higher elevation, so it would have received more precipitation than much of the area around it. So think snow and rain and in this, in this verse, dew. And then it would, when it landed on the mountain, you know, we have Mount Hood. We understand this very, very well. You know, the precipitation goes on the mountain, and then it flows down the mountain through the rivers and channels into the area around it. So this would have been the Jordan River. It would have come down Mount Hermon into the Jordan River Valley, and it would have brought life to everything below it. And so both of these images show an abundance and an overflowing an overflowing that leaves its place of origin and covers every area around it, covers the whole priest's body and then down into the floor. And so it wouldn't, uh, you know, David is using this somewhat as a hyperbole, right? Like when the priest is coming and being, you know, anointed, like I said, it's not a bath, right? Like when they were actually doing it, it wasn't a total bath, like a baptism with, you know, oil. But he's using this to show that in this case, it's, a, it's an abundance. God is abundantly blessing his people. And so God's blessing flows down and doesn't stop. And we know that that blessing comes from the holy love of the Trinity. And it doesn't just stop there. It flows out from the Trinity and down and blesses all of those who wish to be covered. The love of God, the Son and the Spirit together pouring out that love on all of us. Those who wish to be covered by his love are those who are humble enough to place themselves under the blessing of the Trinity so that they can receive that outflowing. We aren't going to get a taste of the blessing as humans, as people, as a community, if we are trying to constantly put ourselves above God and his will. We have to purposely put ourselves underneath it and get the outflowing of God's blessing. And that looks like we need to acknowledge one another, and we need to be a community of believers. And God talks about this in Ephesians 4 through Paul. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, 
who is over all and through all and in all. And so God commands this. But not only does he command it, it's good because it's the main way that we grow as believers in maturity and in character as we become more like Jesus Christ. If we are trying to put ourselves above others or put ourselves in higher places, we aren't going to be able to enjoy the sweet blessing and the sweet gift of God. If we are looking down on others, puffing ourselves up to make ourselves feel better in the short term, we are just cheating ourselves. We are hurting others and robbing others. And God is offering so much to us, Central Bible, if we position ourselves under his authority. He wants to pour out his blessing on us. And we can experience a glimpse of it here on earth and in church because Jesus has come and brought his kingdom down to us. And in one day, I really believe that one day we'll, we'll experience that full blessing. We're getting a glimpse of it now, but one day we're going to get a full understanding of that blessing. And so the unity in Psalms 133 isn't, any, uh, isn't just any type of blessing. It's a unity of God's people. Us. We. We are God's people. It's a Christ-centered unity. And Christ is portrayed in the Bible as the highest priest, and we will only receive the blessing through him um, if we live in him or with him. We have to be in him and in his life. I love that idea of we're inviting others into Jesus's life. We're not inviting him into our life. We're inviting, he's inviting us into his life, and that changes how we live. We follow his teachings and allow his sacrificial love to penetrate into our proud and self-serving hearts. Because the sickness of our hearts, because of the sickness in our hearts and the hearts of all humankind, unity without Christ is only a petri dish for breeding sin. Let's say that again. Because of the sickness in our hearts and in the hearts of all humankind, unity without Christ is only a petri dish for breeding sin. We see so many stark examples of this in our culture, both past and present. And I don't think we have to look any further than currently what's going on in our, our climate. A polarization is being created between the right and the left based on a unity of deception and corruption. It's the irony of ironies. People are banding together right now to tear us apart. A false unity has existed since the fall of mankind into sin and deception. So this isn't anything new. We've seen this for a long, long time. People have unified together to push their will and their agendas because our sinful heart has a me-first attitude and not a God-first attitude. Whether it's a group unified because of racism, like Nazi Germany, or greed, like Wall Street, false unity always leads, ultimately, to death and destruction. And even good reasons for unity are ultimately built on hollow foundations. Sometimes I think we justify stuff by, oh, it's a, it's a good thing. A unity built on something besides Christ is always self-serving when you get down to it. Because unless something is built on the love of God and the truth of Christ, eventually it will flame out and disintegrate as the unifying factors get called into question and people's inner motives take over. People are searching, though. We all know that. We, people are searching. People want answers. People want to know what's going on. Some of you may have heard of a church in London. I love this. It's, it's, uh, it, oh, let me tell you. So it's a church in London that is formed. It's called the Sunday Assembly. Has anybody heard of this, the Sunday Assembly? It's a church like none other. So it's an atheist church. 
It's a group of people who have said, we love the idea of church, but we don't actually want to serve God. We just want to get together as a church. And so they call it the Sunday Assembly. And so they do all of the things. It's built, it's, it's basically, it's a nonprofit club where they, they, they come and they do good things and they're with one another. So they sing pop songs, they give TED Talks, and contribute financially to the group, and they also actually have community groups throughout the week. And so I think it's, it's, it's really interesting, and actually they're hiring, so if they need a new director, so if you're interested in moving to London, you can submit your application. And I think many of us in this room could easily laugh at the idea, I first did, uh, and pass judgment, but sometimes I wonder how many Christian churches are much different than this. They sing songs, they listen to interesting talks, they give, and they're part of small groups, but then they go home happy with their dose of community and warm, fuzzy feelings they get from hanging out and listening uh, to great music with friends. And we can't let church become absent of the radically life-changing realities of what it means to surrender our lives to Christ, else we become that, a nonprofit social club. So we can serve, yes, we give, yes, we sing songs, yes, we eat food, yes. But, do we, but we do it not only because it has earthly benefit, all of those things have earthly benefit, but we do it because Jesus modeled it for us throughout his gospels and throughout his time on the earth. And when the world's version of community and unity looks better or feels better because it doesn't require as much from us, it doesn't require us to talk to people that are different from us, it doesn't require, um, it's not asking you to sacrifice, it's not asking you to go out of your way. When the world tells you that you can just get your fix from community online or that you can raise your kids however you want in a you-do-you scenario, are we going to push back against that? Are you going to push back against that and say that there's something different? And that's living in the brotherly unity of God's love. In our churches and in our homes, we can, find one, uh, we can only find true Christian unity if God's blessing and anointing is at the origin of our unity. If we come together as a church to meet and we don't put Christ at the center, then hear me, we've already failed. We will never be able to show people the life of Christ if we don't show the unity of God to the world around us. We must ask the question, how is what we do here on Sundays any different than what the world around us does? Or our community groups, how is that different than what our culture is doing? Are we gossiping and complaining? Are we avoiding someone because they're difficult to talk to or draining? Are we seeking out the person who will advance our social standing instead of finding the person who goes unnoticed? Are we serving for self-recognition or are we doing it because we want to contribute to the kingdom of God? Are we selfish with our resources? Meaning, do we abundantly give of our time and our energy and our money to those who are in our community? Are we reluctant to invite people into our homes If our unity isn't built on the love of Christ, every other way eventually will lead to death. It may taste good for a while, but eventually it will lead to death. In our Sunday gatherings, in our community groups, and in our interactions with our neighbors, we can display that Christ-centered unity through the way we practice hospitality. How do we do that? There's a couple things. 
First, we need to eradicate legalism in our hearts. We need to make Christ the judge, not us. Should we be honest with one another in our community? Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to get to that in a second. Should we seek to live holy and moral lives? Absolutely. But what let's not do is let's not hold other people to a standard that Christ himself didn't hold them to. Christ didn't focus on the outward appearance. He focused on the heart and the inner motivations of people. Second, we must tear down our walls of preference both in our hearts and in our outward expressions towards one another. And I think this one is tough. I know this one's tough for me because we all prefer things. We all have preferences, and those aren't necessarily bad things. Our, but our culture has taught us that, as we, that we are to worship our preferences. We are to worship the things that we like because they're so good for us. But when we, when we do that, we become slaves to our preferences, and then they control us. And if, you, and if you need an example of this, here we go. Our TVs have hundreds and hundreds of channels. If you don't want a TV, there's lots of options. You can go Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu, Roku, Sling, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube, and that's just the beginning. And all of those have many, many options. We live in a culture where we can have exactly what we want when we want it. So why are we surprised when that comes into our churches, when it comes into the rest of our lives? So there's a great quote from uh, Screwtape Letters, a a book written by C.S. Lewis. I mean, I have. uh, Colleen put it up on the screen here. If man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for a church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The reasons are obvious. In the first place, the parochial organization should always be attacked because being a unity of place and not of liking, it brings a people of different classes and psychology together in the kind of unity the Lord desires. So the Screwtape letter, screw Letters is a, is a fiction book written by C.S. Lewis where he's, uh, a couple of demons are talking to one another about how to best tear down Christians, how to best pull them away from God. And what he's saying here is simple. He's saying, if we can't stop them, then we need to get them to go to visit lots of different churches so that they can find the preferences that they like most and get at their inner motivations and allow that to tear them down. Let's not let that get into our church and in our minds. Thirdly, dwelling in God's unity calls us to be hospitable and generous with one another as a church community. Hospitality is the art of using your life as a vessel, my life, for God to bring others into his unity. That's what we're doing. We're trying to invite other people into God's unity. And this is something Abby and I have spent a lot of time thinking about lately, last couple of months. How do we be more hospitable? What would it look like to be more generous with our time, our energy, and our money that God has given us so abundantly? How do we abundantly give that to others? We want to be able to move out of this mentality of scarcity that just so permeates who we are as people and in our culture and realize that God has given us more than enough. Just like in Psalm 133, it wasn't just a little bit of oil that was dumped. It was so much oil that it flowed all over everything, all through the robes, all down the beard, all to the ground. And so as we move to have this type of community, we probably need to look at some practical steps of what this looks like. 
How do we take steps forward to be more honest and generous and hospitable with one another and those around us? The first thing we need to do is lean into discomfort in our church community. If we are unified in Christ's love, these difficult conversations are not threatening. Having difficult conversations can often be threatening. But instead, life give, uh, but instead become, uh, because we are apprentices under Jesus, we can lean into these hard conversations like he did. As we look to the scripture, the spirit will work in our lives and then use us to work into the lives around us. When a hard conversation comes along, we need to be a community that doesn't isolate ourselves out of fear. It's so much easier to avoid hard conversations and walk straight into truth. Can I get an amen for that? Yeah. The philosopher Jordan Peterson says this, and I love this. The most brave and exciting thing you can do with your life is walk straight into truth because truth is scary. It's scary to receive truth and it's scary to share truth. As a church, we must be willing to share hard truths with one another because our goal is to be more like Christ. Our goal is not to be more well-liked. If we are to be more like Christ, we are to be truth speakers. Matt Chandler, a pastor of the Village Church in Texas, says this, when the people in the church dwell together in unity of the gospel and together pursue the building up of one another in love, they are providing fertile soil for the roots of deep joy. If we want to have joy in our community, it comes from a unity that is built on the truth of God. But these hard conversations that are filled with truth need to come primarily through friends. Our job as Christians and as people who are in this church is not primarily to be a truth deliverer. Sometimes I think that we think that's our job. I'm just going to deliver the truth. No, it's to be a gospel-centered community that delivers truth. That's different. We're not just truth givers. We're gospel-centered community that delivers truth. And truth is best delivered through loving, established relationships and in the context of the unity that comes in Psalms 133. If we are to love a community built around brotherly and sisterly love, choosing, keeping, and, and uh, forging relationships becomes of utmost importance. Choosing, keeping, and forging friendships will be of the utmost importance. And in your early life, your community, what in your early life, your community is your family, right? You grew up and you're a little kid, your biggest influence it's your parents and your sisters, maybe your grandparents. But as you get older, your community becomes your friends. It becomes your people around you. It becomes this church community. But finding friends can be difficult. I, people all of the time say this. Man, I just I can't find good friends. And I think it's actually one of the hardest things that we can do because friendship takes two equal partners. And it takes two equal partners over a long period of time. It's not just a, oh, I have a friend. Ooh, this is awesome. It takes a consistent walking with somebody else. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says this, the very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends, where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing, and I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. No friendship can arise through affection. Of, uh, no friendship can arise, though affection, of course, may, there would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something. 
Even if it were only an enthusiasm, enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice, those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. As apprentices of Jesus, our same truth is the gospel of Christ. And the gospel is not afraid of truth in our community. The gospel is a whole ton of truth smashed together with a whole ton of love. And as Christians, we have the blessing of enjoying relationship around the greatest truth ever known. So if you're the type of person who is too afraid to tell the truth to a friend, you are not actually a friend, or at least you're not a good friend. Because a friend will never withhold something good from another friend that is beneficial for them, even if it's hard. In a friendship, the ultimate goal is that the other person will be the greatest version of themselves that they can be. If you have a friend who is doing something, thinking something, or saying something that is harmful or is keeping them from being the best version of who, who God made them, you have an obligation to say something. But this is hard. I know this firsthand. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this at all, and I know a lot of people in here can probably relate. I think um, the ironic thing, though, is I love people to speak honestly to me. I love it when people can point things out in my life and tell me areas that I'm slipping up in. And so this week I've been thinking about what does that say about me, that I have a hard time telling truth to others, but I like hearing it myself. This is what I think. So sometimes I'll say, I love that person too much to tell them the truth. They would be too hurt if I spoke honestly with them. You know what I'm actually saying there? I love myself too much to make myself go through that hard thing. Proverbs 21.6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Later, Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man or woman sharpens another. What better place to get honest, humble feedback than in this community from somebody who loves you, who cares for you, and has been walking with you? Abby and I have a saying in our, that we use in our marriage when we're having a hard conversation. If it's getting tense and we feel like the other person is attacking the other person, we, we pause and we say this, remember, we're on the same team, meaning we're fighting the same battle. We're trying to over- overcome the same thing. I'm not trying to put you down or make you feel bad or make you, look like, you know, feel like you're two inches tall. I just want you to be the best son or daughter that Christ wants you to be. And I think we have an epidemic in our society, and it's an epidemic of loneliness and a lack of friendships. And I think it's partly because of what I've been talking about. Because of our highly mobile, highly online culture, we no longer have the opportunity for choosing, keeping, and forging friendships. Instead, we interest ourselves with other things because loving a friend is too much work. And we've convinced ourselves that it won't end well anyways, right? My friends are just going to leave me, or my friends are going to let me down, or this, or that, or whatnot. Another good C.S. Lewis quote. Guys, I got a lot of them today because it's just so good. Uh, Colleen, you can put this one up. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. 
But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Tim Keller, a pastor theologian at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, talks about Jesus as the ultimate friend. Isn't that what Christ did? He was our ultimate friend. Wasn't he vulnerable for us? He exhibits the ultimate brotherly unity as he pours out, uh, that poured out on all of us. Jesus will always let you in and never let you down. And normally in a friendship, when one friend abandons the other friend, what happens? The other friend abandons as well. They both pull away from the relationship. But not with Jesus. When Jesus and his friends abandoned him, he said, actually, I'm going to die for you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to die for you. Jesus is the ultimate friend because he loves at all times. He is always there in adversity. When faced with the situation of having to tell the truth, he says, you are a sinner in need of a savior. And not only will I be honest with you, I'll carry that burden for you. Going further, he's the ultimate friend because instead of just inflicting the wounds of her friend, of Proverbs, he then turns around and takes those wounds for you. And when Jesus was in the garden, his friends were falling asleep. They were getting ready to abandon him. And God the Father comes to Jesus and says, um, uh, you either need to experience hell or you need to abandon your friends. And he says, I'll die and I'll experience hell. What kind of a friend is that? If we know that Jesus is the ultimate friend to us, then we can confidently be truthful to our friends and to those around us, not fearing rejection. Our church can be that to one another. Our community groups can be that to one another. We can confidently share hard truths with one another out of love, not because it's easy, but because Christ has already taken the rejection upon himself that we fear. Additionally, Christ-centered brotherly love, uh, unity flows to all. It's not just truthful, it's different. It's radical and kind of weird. It's super weird. It's not just kind of weird, it's super weird. It says our unity is built on the bedrock of Jesus being our Savior, and as a result, I won't just care about you, I'll get along with you. I can be surrounded by people who are are way different than me, different ages, different political beliefs, different hobbies, different ethnicities, different ways of looking at the world, different ways of parenting. Because when community is built on the truth of the gospel, the gospel will change how and why we engage with our community. Not only that, it goes one step further. Not only can we engage with people who are different than us um, because of the gospel, we realize that those differences um, are actually good and chosen for us. And so this one last C.S. Lewis quote, this is just so good to end on here. In friendship, we think we have chosen our peers, or in church, we think we have chosen our congregants. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our birth, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not at a first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work, 
Christ who said to the disciples, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, our church, ye have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating in good taste in finding one another. It is an instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. This is the type of brotherly unity that as a church we need to be striving for. A unity that says, yes, commonalities and mutual interests are important. I'm not saying we can't get together and do fun things that we enjoy doing. But, what it, but what, what, what's most important is the amazing truth of the gospel that brings us all together, together. The gospel says that it's not what we have done for others, but what God has done for us. And then we come full circle in Psalm 133. Look at the last line. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The type of community that keeps the gospel at its center is the community that has a profound unity unlike anything else. And from that comes the blessings that will be seen nowhere else. Blessing that God pours out on us not just now, but into eternity as we continue to live in unity with one another. I asked Maura to uh, share a testimony with us today uh, about a way that she has experienced unity uh, and brotherly unity and sisterly unity in her life. And so if you, you want to come up, Maura. Maura is in uh, one of our CB communities, and she was over spending some time with uh, my wife this week and just telling Abby about her, her CB community and how it has changed her life. So I'm going to so have her. Blame Abby for me you can blame Abby for being up you. here. Yep. So hi, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Maura, and um, I was asked to share about the, the community group that I host in my home in light of Psalm 133 this morning. Um, and I'll, I just wrote, wrote it down, so I'll be reading it to you. I was approached about starting a community group last September as I had just purchased a house, and through a series of odd and unfortunate events, the group looked nothing like I had originally imagined. Let me tell you what it's not. It's not perfect, it's not pretty, and it's not easy, but it is good, it is pleasant, and it is precious. So I've chosen three words to help explain how I've grown to appreciate the 14 humans who come mess up my house on Monday nights with food, chocolate, and Legos. So first is diversity. They say that no two people are alike, but that couldn't be truer for our group. Other than that, two of our men are currently suffering from sciatica. So you probably see them standing in the back throughout the entire service. But all joking aside, this describes our group. Ages spanning from two to the mid-60s, hitting every single decade in between. Life stages of unmarried, currently married, remarried, or never been married. Blessed with one kid, six kids, no kids, or adopted kids. We have drastically different jobs in ministry, healthcare, real estate, the fine arts, retirement, and homeschooling. In all honesty, if we were not walking with God, it would be unlikely for the group of us to gather. This brings me to my second word, which is unity. This unlikely group is so good, pleasant, and precious because our unification in Christ is the reason that we meet. Scripture says in 1 John, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The word fellowship means sharing in common or sharing together. By nature of our redemption in Jesus Christ, we walk in unity. 
And the last word to describe my appreciation for this group is family. What happens when family is around? You become yourself. Your worst qualities come out. You get impatient, but you also become vulnerable. You serve one another, sometimes giving and sometimes taking. Members of my group have babysat last minute, given rides, cleaned each other's houses, and ran errands for each other. We've cooked meals, weed hacked blackberry bushes, given medical advice, and taken medical advice. I don't always show God's love to my group, but God always shows his love through them to me. Please don't take away from this that my community group is better than yours, or that if you're not in one, you're missing out. I shared this to tell you that the dynamics of diversity, unity, and family are right here in this entire congregation. We are each other's family, and the Lord brings his life forevermore unto us. I am thankful for your presence, Central Bible. Praise be to God. Thanks, Mara. So I love that testimony because it's uh, honest and that it's not always perfect and it's a challenge. And I would be lying to you if I didn't share those some same feelings. Uh, it's not easy to be, have that type of community. It's not easy to be honest with one another. It's not easy to keep Christ at the center. And I think it's something that we all need to be striving for together. And we need to be holding each other accountable <clears throat> to do that together. And I think as we do that, and as we move forward, I think Christ's abundant blessing will pour out on us, on our whole community, and it will be so abundant that it's going to cover our faces and our beards and our dresses and our cloaks and our coats, and it's going to go all the way down and make a big pool on the ground as it just you know, comes out um, from the Lord. So I love you. Uh, I'm thankful for all of you. And uh, I look forward to being with you all as we continue this type of community with one another. Let's pray. Lord, unity like this is a humbling and overwhelming endeavor. So many of us, probably all of us in here, feel inadequate to be part of that community, to be that type of community with one another. And that's where we beg you to come and to be in our lives, that you would give us the strength, that you would give us the security of your gospel, to know that we don't need to fear rejection because you have taken that upon yourself. We can speak truthfully to one another out of love and out of graciousness and compassion because you have spoken the same truth to us, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we need to be part of what you have done in our lives through a community. And I pray that for our church. I pray a blessing over our church, that we would we'd seek to do that, that we would push each other to do that, that we would not um, allow other things to distract us, that we wouldn't allow our own preferences and the way we think things should be done, but instead that we would look at each other with gracious hearts and gracious eyes um, as we move uh, towards a community that represents what Psalms 133 is talking about. Lord, we love you, and we thank you uh, for all that you've done. In your name, Jesus. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. 
For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.